Are you interested in investing in British small and medium enterprises, or perhaps start your own business, and you don't know where to start to get some key information? You have come to the right place. This is the green season of podcasts. It will introduce you to key aspects of the British legal, regulatory and tax regimes. Directed to overseas investors and small business owners, this series of podcasts offers a comprehensive, yet digestible, introduction to the British investment environment. This podcast has been prepared by Dr. Yanis Glinavos with the help of artificial intelligence tools. Get in touch with Yanis by following the information on the description of this episode to learn more about how the podcast was put together. Without further delay, let us get started on the content of this episode, which focuses on the process of setting up a new company in the UK. This episode presents the necessary stages one needs to go through to set up a private limited company and describes the documentation required. We start by recapping the endeavour of our inventors Anna and Conrad and proceed by discussing costs and procedures, communications with the relevant authorities and conclude with an introduction to the obligations of company directors at the initial stages of the life of a new company, touching on the core of communication obligations with Companies House. In our previous episode we were introduced to inventors Anna and Conrad. They both believe that the door camera invention will make them rich beyond their wildest dreams and they are thinking about the best ways to go about exploiting the potential of their product. Of course, if Anna and Conrad want to make this product a gift to the world, they could consider if they want to set up a charitable company, or they could consider a community interest company. If they decide that a company is a good vehicle for this purpose, they will still need to consider the following. Should they go for a limited, or an unlimited company? To summarize, an unlimited company does not distinguish between the assets of the company and the assets of its members. The shareholders therefore are subject to liability for the debts of the company without a cut-off point. Why would anyone therefore choose to have an unlimited company? Maybe one does not need the feature of limited liability. If one sets up a consultancy for instance, to offer teaching at universities on specialist matters on a sessional basis, then there is little risk that such company will incur debts or risk liabilities of the professional negligence variety. There are in fact a few advantages to an unlimited company. It can return capital to shareholders more easily than its limited sibling. The prohibition against a company acquiring its own shares only applies to limited companies for instance and there is no requirement to make public information on the company's financial position. The absence of limited liability may even make the company appear a safer investment in certain industries and would eliminate the need for guarantors if the business were to seek bank loans. If Anna and Conrad opt for a limited company, then they have the following choices open to them. Should their company be limited by shares or limited by guarantee? As we saw in the previous lecture, a guarantee only activates when things go wrong as opposed to shares that are normally fully paid at the point of registration. One significant consequence of limitation by guarantee is that one can leave the company by resigning. In a company limited by shares on the other hand, one cannot resign a share but needs to find someone to transfer it to. Once they have decided on the type of limitation, they should also consider whether the company should be a private or a public one. The choice has to do with what economic purpose the company serves. Public companies raise finance from the public at large while private companies rely on a limited initial investment from a defined number of people. Companies usually incorporate as private and may become public at a later stage when the company needs influx of investment to grow. If a company wants to register as public initially, they will have to comply with more complex incorporation requirements. The name of the company is very important, as a company becomes an independent creature with its own legal personality, separate to that of its owners and managers. 
The name has huge marketing significance. If Anna and Conrad opt to set up a private limited company, on the application for registration they will need to state the company's proposed name, so that after incorporation they can give adequate publicity to their business venture. To market effectively, the name should be something short and well-considered, as a change of name is a complex process and one that is bound to confuse and alienate customers. In fact, a maximum of 160 characters are allowed. If the company is to be limited, then the name must end with the suffix limited or public limited company. Could Anna and Conrad pick absolutely anything as their company's name? The short answer is no, as there are restrictions, controls and requirements for approval of certain words and expressions when used in a company name, rules on punctuation and permitted characters, sensitive words and expressions. There are also rules on name endings depending on company type. Names that imply a connection with any part of government are not allowed. In order to make a selection, Anna and Conrad will start by going through a process similar to what is known as search engine optimization, whereby one searches for certain keywords to see what comes up on internet search engines. For company names, this is best carried out through the company's house. This service ensures that our inventor's chosen name is not the same as an existing name on the index of company names. Anna and Conrad should also check the trademarks register of the UK Intellectual Property Office to ensure that the proposed name does not infringe an existing trademark. Let us take our inventors through this process, step by step. As mentioned already, Anna and Conrad are not completely free to choose any name they want for their proposed company. If their company is to be a private company limited by shares or guarantee its name must end with limited or LTD. If they opt for a public company, straight away, its name must end with public limited company or PLC. Legislation sets out the controls and restrictions on the choice of company name. There is a requirement that certain expressions and abbreviations which describe a particular form of company can only be used at the end of a name, such as public limited company or community interest company. There are rules which prevent the registration of a name which is the same as an existing name on the index. There are also controls over the use of certain characters, signs, symbols and punctuation in a company name. As mentioned already names that suggest a connection with His Majesty's government, a devolved government or administration or a specified public authority are not allowed. Names that include sensitive words and expressions included in regulations, and names that include words that would constitute an offence and offensive names are also excluded. It is worth exploring further what is meant by same as. If two company names are so similar, they are likely to confuse the public as to which company is which, then they are the same as. To determine whether a name is the same as an existing name, regulations set out the words and expressions that must be disregarded and the words, expressions, signs and symbols that are to be regarded as the same. For example, designated name endings, including permitted abbreviations, are not considered when examining similarity. Certain words and expressions are also excluded from consideration. These include biz, co, co.uk, com, company, UK, United Kingdom, net, org.uk, services, international, blank space between or after a word, expression, character, sign or symbol, and punctuation. The consequence of these rules is that one can register a domain name as a company name. The registrar will not reject it for containing a URL. Some words and expressions will be regarded as the same as, preventing people from easily circumventing the rules. For example, and, and, the and sign, plus, and, the sign plus, the number one, 
and the word one, etc. are considered the same. There are however some exceptions to the same as rules. The rules do not apply when the proposed company will be part of the same group as an existing company, and the existing company consents to the registration of the proposed name. The application to register will need to include a statement from the existing company which confirms its consent to the incorporation of the new company name or that it will form part of the same group. Certain words and expressions cannot be used as part of a company name. This is to avoid the situation where a phrase included in a company or business name could suggest business preeminence, a particular status, or a specific function, imply a connection with a government department, devolved administration or public authority or cause a criminal offence. These rules are in place to protect the public from being misled. There are a list of such sensitive words in the company, limited liability partnership and business names, sensitive words and expressions, regulations 2009, SI number 2615. Also see the company, limited liability partnership and business names, public authorities, regulations 2009, SI number 2982. Even if Anna and Conrad adhere to all these rules and select a name that they believe to be appropriate, they could still be required to change their company name after incorporation if the name is too like an existing name on the index, misleading information was provided at the time of registration, the company's activities are misleading, the company no longer justifies omitting limited from its name, or the name is too similar to a name in which someone else has goodwill. They could be directed to change their company name within five years of incorporation if misleading information was provided to enable the name to be registered or if an undertaking or assurance given to enable the adoption of the name has not been fulfilled. A typical example would be a company whose name and stated activities suggested it was providing training courses that the public believed would lead to a recognized qualification. Whether a name is too like, another is a similar, but not the same test as the one we encountered before in relation to same as names. In general, a name is too like an existing name if the differences are so trivial the public are likely to be confused by the simultaneous appearance of both names on the index and or the names look and sound the same. Names that differ by the inclusion of additional words, as opposed to a few characters, will not be treated as too like, regardless of whether the additional word does or does not describe an activity in detail. However, names that differ only by the inclusion of words that are normally associated with a name ending such as company or partnership will be regarded as too like. When choosing their proposed name Anna and Conrad should check the index to ensure it will not result in an objection for too like which could require them to change their company name. Not all too like names result in an objection but could incur additional costs, for example, new signage, business stationery and also damage to the goodwill you have gained since incorporation. It is also worth noting that English law does not allow opportunistic registrations. This is unlike domain name registrations for example, where the first person to claim the name owns it. Opportunistic registration is the term applied to a company or LLP which registers a similar name to one in which another person has goodwill. There is no restriction on who can complain. Complaints about opportunistic registration are handled by the company names tribunal, not company's house, which provides a remedy for parties who suffer damage by the registration of a company or LLP name in which they have a goodwill reputation. Objections are also based on the suspicion that the name has been registered in order to extract money or to prevent the aggrieved party from registering the name. Anna and Conrad should be aware of the difference between their company's name and a business name. A business name is any name under which someone carries on business other than their own. 
In the case of a company or limited liability partnership, it means a name that is not its registered name. In the case of a sole trader, it means a name other than a surname with or without forenames or initials. In the case of a partnership, it means a name other than the partner's names. Business names are not registered under the Companies Act but some of the rules included in the Act do apply, principally restrictions on the use of certain words in the name and names that could imply a connection with a government department or public body, inappropriate and misleading use of a name ending, e.g., limited, at the end of the name. As we have seen earlier there are rules to prevent the use of names that could mislead the public, and additional rules requiring the names of sole traders and partnerships using a business name to display it on stationery and signs at business premises. Once Anna and Conrad have selected the company's name and are ready to proceed with their registration application, they should be made aware of how they must publicize information about their new company. Regulations made under the Companies Act 2006 require a company to display its name at its registered office and other places of business, on business documents and on websites. The purpose of the regulations is that the legal identity of every company should be revealed to anyone who have, or may wish to have, dealings with it. Every company, unless it has been continuously dormant since incorporation, must display a sign with its registered name at its registered office, any inspection place, at any location at which it carries on business, unless it is primarily used for living accommodation. It must also include its registered name in all business communications, hard copy and electronic. If Anna and Conrad open a physical office or shop, they will need to display a sign with the company name in characters that can be read with the naked eye, in such a way that visitors to that office, place or location may easily see it. They must also include the company's registered name in all forms of business correspondence and documentation, whether in hard copy or electronic, including business letters, notices and other official publications, business emails, checks purporting to be signed by or on behalf of the company, bills, invoices and other demands for payment, receipts and letters of credit. The company name must also be displayed on the business website. While there is no need to include the company name on every page, it must be displayed so it can be easily read. There are also a number of other items of information that a company must communicate to the public. A company must display, key amongst other required information, on all its business letters, order forms and websites the part of the United Kingdom in which the company is registered, the company's registered number, the address of the company's registered office, if a company is exempt from the requirement to use, limited, in its name, the fact that it is a limited company. If anyone with whom the company deals in the course of business makes a written request for the address of its registered office, the address of any place of inspection, the type of company records kept at the registered office or inspection place, the company must provide this information, in writing, within five working days. It is not necessary however for the company to state the director's names on its business letters unless it chooses to do so. Nevertheless, if it does decide to include the names then it must state the names of all its directors. In other words, a company cannot be selective about which director's names it shows, it must show all of them or none of them. To incorporate their company, Anna and Conrad must file the following documents. An application to register a company, Form IN01, and pay a fee of £12 for an online application or £40 for a paper one, submit the Memorandum of Association, Articles of Association, and additional information if their choice of name includes a sensitive word or expression. Checking carefully existing names and the rules we discussed earlier on name selection is very important, as it is not possible to reserve a name. The application to register a company, Form IN01, requires the following information. The proposed company name, 
the location of the company's registered office, it may be in England, Wales, Scotland or Northern Ireland, the address of the registered office, whether the company will be private, public or unlimited, choice of articles of association, details of the proposed directors, and the company secretary, if there is to be one, the director's service and residential addresses, a statement of capital and initial shareholdings or a statement of guarantee, notification if the proposed name contains a sensitive word with the confirmation that the views of a government department or other body have been requested, and finally a statement of compliance or guarantee. Anna and Conrad will also need to select a relevant SIC code for their business. This is the Standard Industrial Classification of Economic Activities Code. A condensed list of SIC codes for providing a description of a company's nature of business is offered by Companies House. The Memorandum of Association confirms the subscriber's intention to form a company and become members of that company on formation. In the case of a company that is to be limited by shares, the memorandum will also provide evidence of the member's agreement to take at least one share each in the company. Under the Companies Act 2006, the memorandum is a much shorter document because all the constitutional rules of the company are contained in the Articles of Association. Consequently, the memorandum serves a more limited purpose and once the company has been incorporated, it cannot be amended. The required memorandum wording is included in the, the Companies Registration Regulations 2008, 2008-3014, and Anna and Conrad must use this format when preparing their memorandum. As we have seen in our previous episode, the company's articles of association are its internal rulebook, chosen by its members. Every company is required to have articles, which are legally binding on the company and all of its members. The articles help to ensure the company's business runs as smoothly and efficiently as possible and will set out how decisions are taken by the members and directors as well as various matters connected with the shares. The articles cannot contain rules that are against the law. Provided the members observe this general principle they have complete freedom to choose which rules are included in the company's articles, although they may find it convenient to rely on model articles as a default position. On incorporation a company can adopt model articles in their entirety, model articles with amendments or it can draft its own bespoke articles. What if Anna and Conrad want things very simple and are in a hurry to start their business? With new online submissions of documents, it is very fast to set up a company. In earlier eras where things were more time-consuming, a popular method to start a business fast was to buy an off-the-shelf company. One that is pre-incorporated and then make amendments to its articles and name as appropriate. You may have encountered the terms off-the-shelf company and shell company. An off-the-shelf company is one created by a company formation agent, known as promoter in English law, and held as dormant, pending onward sale to a new business or to a sole proprietor or partnership wishing to become a limited company. A shell company is a company bought off the shelf with nominee directors standing in front of whoever really benefits. When the incorporation process is complete, the registrar will issue a certificate of incorporation stating that the company is incorporated, giving TIT's name and registered number, information on the date of incorporation, whether it is limited, whether it is public or private and the jurisdiction in which its registered office is located. The effect of incorporation is that the members specified in the memorandum become the holders of the shares specified in the statement of capital and the directors and secretary are appointed to their offices. The registrar decides whether to incorporate a company or not, and this is an administrative function subject to judicial review. However, once the company is incorporated, then its creation cannot be undone, as the certificate is taken as conclusive evidence of the company's existence. According to the Companies Act this is all that is needed. A private company can begin to trade.
A public company, on the other hand, is subject to some further requirements. A public company needs to obtain a further certificate of trading. This document certifies that the company's allotted share capital is not less than the required minimum currently £50,000. A private party therefore cannot challenge the act of incorporation, but the Crown can, usually on grounds of public policy. Only the Crown can plead the nullity of a registered company. A company therefore exists, even if it suffers from some flaw of incorporation. The correct action to take in resolving a problem is to wind up the company. This is done to protect people who may have dealt with the company on the strength of the registration certificate. Finally, it is worth mentioning that Anna and Conrad could register for corporation tax when going through the steps of registering their company. Most companies register for corporation tax and pay as an employer at the same time as registering with Companies House. We will discuss details relating to tax in our following lectures. A company, as a legal fiction, needs the intervention of a human agent in order to come about. The persons tasked with creating or helping to create the company are called promoters. The expression promoter covers any individual or company that arranges for someone to become a director, places shares, or negotiates preliminary agreements with potential company members and third parties. Usually this is someone involved in the creation of the company, but this is not necessary. It could be that it is someone who subsequently helps to arrange the floating of the company in a stock market, most usually staff in an investment bank. Because there are many possibilities of abuse of the promoter's position as they usually sell the company their services, or their business, before the company has independent decision-making structures, the courts have concluded that anyone in this position stands in a fiduciary position towards the company with all the duties of disclosure and accounting which that implies. A promoter is prohibited from making any profit out of the promotion without disclosing it to the company. Further, the law mandates that promoters are under a duty to ensure that the company has an independent board of directors and to make full disclosure to it, so that the board can exercise an independent and intelligent judgment on transactions. It is also possible that disclosure to those becoming members of the company is considered equally effective. Nevertheless, this carries the risk that the promoter discloses information to people they are already intimately connected with, and those are not likely to object if they are all participant in transactions aiming at personal, as opposed to corporate, enrichment. The legal position therefore is that disclosure needs to be made to the company, meaning to an entirely independent board, or to the existing and potential members as a whole. Further, the disclosure needs to be explicit. When a transaction generates a profit for the promoter, then the promoter as trustee needs to pass such profit on to the company or disclose any proposed profits and inform the company of its right to value the property at its cost price. However, when the promotion of the company involves offering shares to the public, then explicit disclosure requirements are set by legislation. If the promoter breaches his duties, then the remedy is for the company to bring proceedings for rescission of any contract with them or for the recovery of any secret profits which the promoters have made. The flip side of all these rules is that the only way a promoter can be paid for their services is if they have a contract with the company to that effect. The weakness with this is that the company before incorporation cannot enter into contracts, nor can it become liable for contracts made on its behalf. This leaves promoters in an arguably weak position in demanding subsequently payment for their services. A promoter has an action against any person with whom they have contracted, personal liability and not against the company unless the company subsequently ratifies the transaction. Actions taken by the promoter in setting up the company expose them to personal liability, which persists even if the company ratifies actions done by the promoter post its incorporation. 
In our scenario, Anna and Conrad would be the promoters and subsequent shareholders, members, and directors of the new company. It is unlikely that on these facts there would be conflicting interests between them and the newly formed company. We have discussed on a number of occasions that English law does not take a too prescriptive approach to controlling the organizational aspects of firms. The idea is that freedom of contract prevails, and that the firms themselves should adopt whatever structures they consider to be most appropriate to their business. However, Minimal statutory requirements mean that there are expanded opportunities for abuse from the people tasked with managing the company. What is there to stop the directors of using the company as means of self-enrichment, rather than using it to benefit the shareholders? The key power of the shareholders is the one found in section 168, they can dismiss the directors at any time by ordinary resolution. However, the law does contain a series of rules to prevent abuses and protect the shareholders. The 2006 Act contains these rules in Chapter 2 of Part 10 under the heading General Duties of the Directors. There has been a lively discussion on whether directors' duties ought to be static, enshrined in statute, or they would be better off left to the courts, so they can evolve alongside business practice. The duties of the directors are owed to the company both in common law and by statute, Section 170. Duties therefore are not owed to individual shareholders or employees. Only those who are able to act on behalf of the company can enforce the duties. The Companies Act lays out in detail the duties of the directors to their company. The most significant duty, and one that will be immediately of relevance to Anna and Conrad upon setting up the company is the one contained in section 172 which states that a director of a company must act in the way they consider, in good faith, would be most likely to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole and in doing so have regard, amongst other matters, to the likely consequences of any decision in the long term. The interests of the company's employees. The need to foster the company's business relationships with suppliers, customers and others. The impact of the company's operations on the community and the environment. The desirability of the company maintaining a reputation for high standards of business conduct. And the need to act fairly as between members of the company. This provision is important because it forms the basis of the statutory acceptance of corporate social responsibility in English law. This is supposed to be a modernized version of shareholder primacy, including a series of other considerations that contribute to the long-term success of a company. This is also known as enlightened shareholder value. The idea behind this formulation is that the interests of the shareholders are unlikely to be advanced if the management of a company conducts its business so that its employees are unhappy its suppliers and customers would rather avoid it, it is at odds with the community in which it is based, and its ethical and environmental standards are regarded to be unacceptable. Success is defined in commercial terms as there is an assumption that the company is a commercial company. The directors are expected to behave, subjective test, in the way they consider, in good faith, as the most likely to promote the success of the company. However, this is not to suggest that the interests of stakeholders are now at equal level with the interests of shareholders. The directors consider external interests to the extent that this is desirable to do so in order to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members. The members' interests are still paramount. Not all companies that do business in the UK are incorporated under the Companies Act. A company incorporated outside the UK is called an overseas company. Legislation also deals with overseas companies with the aim of ensuring that there is availability in the UK of the same basic information about a company incorporated abroad which has an established presence in this country. There are therefore specific disclosure requirements for overseas companies having an establishment in the UK. 
Establishment can be defined in two ways as branch or a place of business. A branch is a place of business through which the company directly conducts some or all of the operations inherent in the business. A branch therefore has the appearance of permanence and is physically equipped to negotiate business with third parties directly. A place of business on the other hand requires a degree of permanence or recognizability as being a location of the company's business. However, what gets done can be purely ancillary to the company's business, such as warehousing or data processing. An overseas company which opens an establishment in the UK needs to notify the registrar with information about it and its establishment. Failure to do so is a criminal offence but does not affect the validity of transactions conducted by the company. Generally, in English company law, there tend to be criminal penalties for violations, but the transactions themselves are not voided as this presumably protects market expectations. Having published contact information for a company ensures that one is able to serve documents if they want to bring action against them. Ongoing disclosure requirements contain those matching trading rules and annual reporting. Of course, overseas companies are still regulated according to the rules of their place of incorporation. In this episode, we focused on the process of setting up a new company in the UK. This podcast presented the necessary stages one needs to go through to set up a private limited company and described the documentation required. We guided our inventors Anna and Conrad through the various choices they will need to make when setting up their new company. The episode explained how decisions are made on organizational structure, how to select a name, what type of information disclosure is needed and at which stage, what the steps are when one seeks to incorporate a company and at what cost. We also touched on the rights and obligations of promoters and directors as well as options for overseas companies seeking establishment in the UK. Thank you for listening till the end of the episode. I hope you are looking forward to the next episode where we talk about investing and participating in small and medium enterprises in the UK, discussing elements of personal and corporate taxation.